0: Welcome to The Glittering Bell Jar, a Harry Potter podcast. I'm Valerie. And I'm Bree. We're two writers and Harry Potter fans. In this podcast, we explore the Harry Potter series by reading it backwards. As you might recall,
1: Harry and his friends discover the power of The Glittering Bell Jar in the Department of Mysteries as it causes objects
0: to move backward and forward through time. We're doing the same thing each week, working backwards through a few chapters, starting with Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows. Ready to explore Harry Potter in a new way? then join us in the Glittering Bell Jar.
1: Hello, everyone, and welcome to this special season finale slash bonus episode of the Glittering Bell Jar. I am one of your hosts, Valerie, and I am joined today by Brie, as always. And Samantha. Yay! Samantha! Samantha is our special guest. She is joining us for this finale slash bonus episode. I haven't really decided what it is, but not that's not the point. <laughs> Samantha, do you want to give us an introduction, how you found the podcast, what level Harry Potter fan
2: you are? Yeah, sure. So my mom started reading the first book to me uh, and my brother when we were little, and then mm-hmm. I went to every midnight launch of all the books and all the movies, you know, true Harry Potter obsessed fan. <laughs> Um I found the podcast uh, by chance searching for a Harry, Pod- Harry Potter podcast, the first episode, the day the same first episode came out, and I'm just really excited to be here. Yay! Love having you here. <laughs> Thanks for coming. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Yes, I'm, I can't wait. Cool. So this is a different
1: episode. So if you are brand new to the podcast, we're going to kind of just dive into it because we have a lot to cover. This is like not a four chapter length episode, but nearly because we have two films. Mm -hmm. Because this special episode, we are talking about Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows part one and part two, the films. Yes. So as a reminder, all the rest of the season, we were reading Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows backward. We started at the epilogue, we went chapter by chapter backward. And now to recap, we are going to talk about the two films, compare and contrast with the book, talk about some of the themes that came up that we talked about during the episodes of the rest of the season that are now like in the films or not in the films, as I'm sure you're going to hear us say a lot of, and it's going to be a little bit different. So if this is your very first episode, it's up to you. You can stay in this episode if you like what you hear. Samantha's not around every week, unless we really like her, and then she just might be part of this going forward. We'll see. (laughs) Uh, But if you want the full experience, the idea is you would go back to episode one, listen real quick through many. Many hours of Harry Potter goodness, and then join us for this recap. But you can start here, you can start there, you can start it in the middle. It's, I mean, I can't tell
0: you what to do, it's your audio experience. So, with that, <laughs> do we want to just dive right in? Yes, let's do it. I am so excited. Yes. I know that with you, Valerie, too, every time I would get on HBO Max, I would see the movies and I'd be like, oh. I want to watch the movies. And I mean, we are refraining from watching any of them, but especially obviously not the last two. And it was kind of a relief to finally be able to like, watch it. So I am very excited.
1: (laughs) It was the great relief of my life to see that Warner Brothers logo coming back up. I was like, I, I mean, Samantha, you mentioned that you did the midnight showings. You remember like that Warner Brothers logo showing up in the clouds was iconic Harry Potter. And the first part one has that terrifying Horcrux creaky noise and the, the rusting. And it's just yes. like the, the whole tone, just like we talked about last episode, where the whole tone in the first few chapters, just like the first part of the movie, the tone is totally different than another Harry Potter book, movie, whatever. It's all different.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And at the same time, at the end with the 19 years later, I was like, okay, I feel like I need to cry like I did the first time. Like, it's all over. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it was very emotional. So I think we're probably going to
1: kind of move through the films chronologically, but I have a feeling, like usual, we're going to jump around a little bit. Yeah. And we may take a break in the middle as we hit part one, part two, but it's literally, you can watch them back to back. In fact, we watched it in three parts. We watched part of part one, part one into part two, and then we finished part, th- part two. I was going to call it part three, but we finished the, the <laughs> second one.
2: <laughs> it's three sittings. And I watched part two first, and then part one. I was trying to keep the whole watching it, reading it backwards thing going. True fan. (laughs) Yeah, I love that. You are committed.
0: You're committed. (laughs) I thought about that, but I feel like we've been doing such, like, we've been doing that for so long that I was like, I need, I need it to just go in order. (laughs) I just need for it to feel right. Okay. All right. So where should we start? Who, who wants to kick us off? I mean, I just want to say that the movies in general, I know the books were dark. We just read them. They're very sad. They're very dark. But the movies themselves, they feel even darker than the books to me. And I don't know if you guys agree with that. But probably because you have that visual aid of you see all the wreckage. Everyone is so sad. They're not very expressive. Everyone is solemn. Almost the entire two movies. It's dark. It's you know what I mean? But you all of it everyone was sad the entire time and you just even the burrows looked horrible you know what i mean it looks so sad what i have an interesting point okay. you
1: call it the burrows with an s which is what mad Eye moody calls it too oh i don't know if you know that that it's called the burrow it's just it's a singular but mad i moody said it and i was like <laughs> that must be where brie picked it up because Probably. you've been calling it the burrows the whole time and i was like where did that come from? Yeah, you you were inspired by Mad Eye on that one. I actually had a note about that because I was like, I know I know where Bri got it from.
0: <laughs> okay, I love that. <laughs> At least I got it from somewhere and I didn't just make it up.
1: Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, One thing that I did want to kick off is these opening scenes, because they're actually not in the books, right? So we have Scrimger's Mm -hmm. statement about the strength of the the ministry, Mm -hmm. and we have Hermione's goodbye to her parents, which is described in the books, but is obviously not shown in the books. We have Ron standing outside the burrow, burrows. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And I think it's an interesting introduction because, one, it cuts out a lot of characters, right? A lot of characters that are in the first few chapters are not in these sections. And two, it lays the foundation for the tone of this first film. And then the the pair of films in general being a lot darker. But addressing what you said, Brie, I think an interesting point is that there's a soundtrack when you watch the movie. And that does add, too, Mm -hmm. to the immersiveness is that there's this soundtrack throughout the whole thing.
2: Yeah, no, that's a good point. It's a whole experience. Yeah, I think seeing Hermione obliviate, like, with the picture frames, I was like, the one thing that bothered me a little Mm -hmm. bit was the empty picture frames. Like, if I turned around and saw empty picture frames, I would like, I didn't do that. (laughs) But also I liked how when they were in the forest of Dean and she was talking about how like her parents used to take her there and then she was saying, well, like they probably wouldn't recognize it now. I was thinking at first, oh, it was because it changed so much, but she was saying it looks the same. Mm -hmm. So it's because the memories that they would have had with her there were gone.
1: Mm hmm yeah i remember seeing that in the theater that particular scene because it wasn't expected it wasn't something that was really i mean it was discussed but not shown or it wasn't on the page in the same way i remember just being like oh no here this is going to be really hard because they're starting with one of the most heartbreaking things which is this idea that this woman would erase herself from her parents lives to save them and i actually caught um we watched with closed captioning on which i highly recommend because i caught so much more from the closed captioning and all the background that her parents are discussing their trip to australia when and she obliviates them so all it's like it is a complete representation of the way hermione describes the scene in the books is i they were going to australia they don't know me they just oh. no, like they were planning an australia trip when it happened so they would have finished planning their australia trip and gone off without her
0: yeah Yeah. And you know, in the books, I didn't feel like Hermione was that sad, or it didn't seem that way to me. But I actually like in the movies, because that does make sense. Obviously, she would be very, even if you think there's a possibility that you're going to make it, there's a possibility she doesn't. Her parents will never remember that they had her. And that is that is very sad.
1: I did think there was a little bit of a loophole when she's like walking down the street. Of the Death Eaters, just need to know where she lived to go to ask the neighbors. Like, that like, yeah. what about the girl who used to live here? And they're like, oh, she just went away. And then, then they, I don't know. There was a little bit of a gap there. But I was like, I guess I didn't need to think it all that deeply.
0: Well, I think they're supposed to go to Australia and they're going to stay there. I think she's like got them going there forever. Mm. So then, hmm. you know, they just—they're not supposed to tell anyone where they're going or something. I don't. But yeah, that's fair. So we ended last
1: episode, episode 14, with discussion of Bellatrix and her amorous interest Mm. in Voldemort. And I was wondering, Brie and Samantha, what you thought of Bellatrix's betrayal in both films, because I thought it was different than the books.
2: I definitely thought it was different. I was even looking for it because you see all these like memes and like fan pages that talk about that. And like she volunteered to kill Harry and she like, I just felt like she was just trying to get attention, but not this like romance with him. 100%. It's portrayed completely different in the movie. She's kind of
0: just like a mad person. She's just crazy, you know, like she's just evil, weird, crazy, all the words. Yeah. So it- There's no, she definitely wants to serve him and, you know, looks up to him, I guess, but not in any kind of.
1: She doesn't want to
0: serve him. (laughs) (laughs) See, if you're not watching on
1: YouTube, you just missed what my eyebrow did as I delivered that line.
0: (laughs) You can subscribe on YouTube too Uh, if you like listening that way. (laughs) Yeah. Which is, I mean, a little disappointing because I, I, I truly think that is where the author was going with it, but. Maybe not. Well, I think that's true
1: because isn't it the case that we discussed in the Cursed Child part of the universe that there is a <gasps> child
0: of Voldemort mm-hmm. and Bellatrix? Yeah. So yeah, mm. yep.
1: that's outside my co- my knowledge of the canon. I know it counts, but I don't know it well enough to reference it.
0: Yeah, true. Yeah, you're right. Okay. Well, there we go. I've been validated. I will say one of my favorite last-minute
1: character introductions happens in this movie, which is Mundungus Fletcher. I think he is perfect. The guy whoever they cast as Mundungus is kind of slimy character. It's just perfectly class. And it's interesting to me that at this point they chose to introduce him. I think a lot about with this adaptation, how they what they decided to bring in and what they they didn't, and how they had to adjust to what had been done in previous films. And they hadn't introduced Mundungus previously in Order of the Phoenix when he was a relevant character. So they mm-hmm. had to decide, is he important enough to bring in now? Because it's the end and then we don't want to just bring in a new character for nothing. But I guess that whole scene of Mundungus and Lockett was so important they couldn't figure out how to write around him.
2: Yeah. I thought Mundungus was in Goblet of Fire at the Quidditch match with the Leprechaun gold. Maybe
1: he. Is. I don't. Know, that's oh. the last
2: movie I watched, and I like seeing him in this movie didn't seem weird to me. But I may be. I may be off.
1: <laughs> I could be wrong. I mean, I like like Brie said at the top. We've been ignoring. We have not been watching. He felt familiar, oh. but that could be a lifetime of familiarity here. So <laughs> I, I hope he's in it because I really like him. I really like the guy <laughs> playing the character. I think he does it perfectly well, like a slimy mm-hmm. British. Used car yes. salesman move, and it just works for me. I just yes. love it. Well, Samantha, just to c- confirm, you were the one who corrected me, right,
2: when I had an error earlier in the season. So yeah, yeah. yeah you're probably right, yes. I and mean, I should not doubt you. <laughs> no, it's like there's been a, there's been a couple of times where I'm listening, I'm like, no, I I think that, and then I'll like you guys will catch and be like, oh, I said this and I meant this. I'm like, okay, yeah. you got it, you got yeah. it. <laughs> <laughs>
0: yeah, I love it though. You know what I noticed and what I didn't, I don't feel like you feel this in the books. Ron and Hermione actually do have on-screen chemistry and I never really paid attention to that before, but there are like the kiss, just okay. But like the other, the in-between moments, there's like an electricity there that they both portray very well, um, especially for just having, being friends, you know, for so long, the two, actor and actress, but they do such a good job. Like you have those moments and you're like, oh, you know, like the stomach flipping ones and you're like, oh, okay, like you did a good job. Mm-hmm. I think Rupert Grant carries the weight on that. I think he does an
1: incredible job of really showing that he sees Hermione.
2: Absolutely. He
1: sees her. And I loved those scenes because I actually had just rewatched the wedding scene, a clip on YouTube, right? Like last week as part of our research discussing Bill and Fleur's wedding. And the scene was like, Ron looks at Hermione at the wedding. Like that was the name of the clip because that's the important part of that scene, not the wedding.
2: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So when I watched because I watched the movies backwards, like I saw the kiss and then like they come out like holding hands all shy and like, oh, yeah, this is a thing now. But when I watched the first movie after that, it felt like I was seeing them after the kiss. So it completely like validated for me that one thing would lead to another. It felt there at that level already. Mm hmm. Good. That's a really good piece of feedback
1: I would not catch because I watched it forward. (laughs) And we had that a lot in the season where we would like find something and then get back to where it started and be like, oh, now it all makes sense. Absolutely. That fits perfectly. Speaking of kisses, can we talk about kisses for a minute? Yeah. Because we spent a lot of time talking about the Ginny Harry kiss in the book. And now we have the film version. (laughs) And I I, I have (laughs) the note in my notes, um, the locket scene which I know Brie, you don't really like the locket <laughs> scene. I remember you saying like you found it very uncomfortable. Right. Yeah. No, it's it's weird and creepy. The only thing I like about the locket scene is that it proves Dan Radcliffe can kiss an actress with a lot of passion. <laughs> and it just shows that unfortunately, he did not have that chemistry with Bonnie Wright as Ginny. It just it just didn't work. It just
0: didn't work. So I don't okay, I have a I have a counterpoint. I, their chemistry was okay. What I think really did it is because they they cut out too many of Jenny's scenes. Yeah, like you don't get any of those because whenever she had the dress open, it wasn't it wasn't as good. Obviously, as Rupert Rupert did a really good job, but. The dress scene still has a little bit of electricity, but she doesn't get to have whenever in the, what the second movie, whenever she she's there and she gets to be jealous of Cho, you don't get any of that where, you know, Cho wants to show Harry, you know, the Ravenclaw tower and the scene in their room where they're actually making out. Like they literally just, he zips her up, turns her around and they start making out. There's no lead up, there's nothing. And they kill that energy in that
1: scene by bringing in George for comedy. And it's like they took what should have been... And probably because they cut so much of Ginny before. They're like, this is really awkward. We need something to break that tension. And so we're going to bring in George and make it funny. Because I'm just laughing. And I'm like, I'm awkward. And then I'm laughing. And that is not the stomach dropping feeling that we really should have with that scene.
0: Yeah. Yeah, it was very disappointing. I am i will forever be mad about that. I just feel like we got robbed as far as like the actress is fine. Like Bonnie Wright, great. It's just that she didn't get, she just didn't get enough scenes. They didn't give Ginny enough meat. I feel like we did not get robbed with Hedwig's finale, though.
1: Oh. I prefer the film to the book, hands down. She dives in front of that curse for Harry, and that mm-hmm. is how it should be. She is a loyal pet. She honors her master, and she takes one for him, because that would have hit Harry. Yep. That was the whole point of that scene, and I don't know why. Maybe they proposed it in the screenwriter's room, and Joe Rowling was like, I should have written it that way. Let's do it. Yeah
2: absolutely like I don't know
1: how that feedback process goes when they would deviate from the book on such an important detail but I love that he lets her go because of course why does she need to be in a cage to go to the burrow she's a bird she can fly yeah. nobody knows it's Hedwig it's a bird and then that she comes back for him is like I just loved it I just I can't it's so good
2: yeah I had I had notes on that too so yeah, so Hedwig defending Harry is also like why he thought his cover was blown, like how they knew he was the real one. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I and I loved that 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 w- explained why Voldemort like matched ones instead of him like trying to find on the other ones like we, he knew like Mundungus saw him and left <laughs> and he killed Mad-Eye and then so he like mm-hmm. was making his way probably through all of them but Hedwig is what gave it away and it was like the ultimate sacrifice at the same time.
1: Yeah. I did. Th- I thought it made more sense and it was more concise for a from a film perspective, mm-hmm. especially because Stan Shunpike is that character that Harry fails to shoot to kill, but who we might have recognized but would have we don't need to explain it. Like give us something visually that makes a ton of sense. I love that. I actually had notes on that as well as like yeah. Hedwig, her finale is such a great rewrite of the books. And I say that in my favorite movie, which is the almost perfect adaptation
0: of the book. So that deviation totally love it. Love it. Yeah, 100%. It's the only thing that makes sense. Why would he have her in her cage? That's so stupid. Like Harry wouldn't do that to Hegwood. Makes no sense. So, what about the wedding? So, uh Luna, I had a Luna moment, obviously. It's obviously a little bit different in the book when Luna is at the wedding with her father, but it's one of the reasons I feel like I'm Luna and it's I guess partially the movie Luna is she literally just says, "Harry doesn't want to talk to us right now. He's just too polite to say so." Like, I just she can see through him, which is kind of I guess a way of doing that without Harry being disguised since they chose not to disguise him in the movie. She's very intuitive and empathetic and can really pick up on people's cues so and she just would say it where like you know most people wouldn't just say that
2: yeah i enjoyed seeing like their friendship you guys had talked on on one of the other episodes about like luna and harry's friendship is so different than harry's friendship with anyone else and so i was paying extra attention to that in these movies too like how they showed that yeah i don't think we get enough of it frankly but no but it's still like it's still cute it's still cute you see this like okay they have a little something I like that in this
1: rereading and watching the films, it's kind of funny. I've never really talked about Harry Potter with other people. Yeah, (laughs) Like I've nerded out with other people about Harry Potter, but never like, let's critically look at these different things that are happening and discuss them and pull them apart and see what's inside. Because I get a lot of stuff from our conversations, Brie, that I would never have gotten. I mean, I never got Bellatrix and the sexual tension. I I never really got Luna had a special friendship with Harry where she just gets him. And for Harry, that's so important because nobody gets him. Nobody understands. He has to let people in and explain everything about his whole
0: hero journey. And that Luna's just like, no, I'm here, whatever. Like I got it. And I think that's partially because she had lost her like mother. So she kind of understood a little bit and she was confident enough in herself. Unlike Neville, who wasn't confident. So it was hard for him to bond with Harry in that way, I think.
2: What did you guys think about the Neville Luna romance in the movies?
0: I have a note on it.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I have a note that I'm not happy with it. Uh-huh. It makes sense. And I will say a lot of there was a lot of fan service in that pairing because a lot of fans really wanted that to be the way it worked out. Mm -hmm. I guess I just don't I guess I get to be ambivalent because I'm like, it didn't hurt the film at all. Like it literally didn't. It wrapped up two characters in a very satisfying way from a fan service perspective. Mm -hmm. But also I would have been fine if they hadn't done that. It didn't need to happen for the film in any way. So I don't know. They just they just did it for the fans and that happens and that's fine.
0: And it broke a little, there was a little bit of tension. Like it, it was funny. You know what I mean? Where he's like, I'm going to go tell her I love her, you know? And then you have them at the end of the battle sitting next to each other, kind of just like awkwardly. So maybe they just did it for a little bit of tension. I will say I have decided
1: Neville has to become headmaster. Yeah, like we know he becomes Herbology professor, so he's in the running, right? Because you can't become headmaster unless you're a professor. But he gets the Sorting Hat. He saves the Sorting Hat. Mm. That earns you eligibility for headmaster status, in my opinion. Okay, yeah. So I'm just saying, I don't know if that's the case, mm. but it would. I would be deeply upset if Neville wasn't at least offered the position of headmaster after McGonagall, because yep. he has earned it. He has defended that school. He mm-hmm. saved mm-hmm. the Sorting Hat. Team Neville just became Neville for headmaster.
0: 2022 or whatever. (laughs) I'm here for that.
2: Neville for headmaster.
0: Yeah, I agree with you. Something that I'm not happy about in the movie series in general, and I think we've talked about this a little bit, but they skimp on the elves. You don't get to see Creature. You don't get to love him the way we do in the books. You know what I mean? You don't get to see whenever Hermione, you know, decides to petition for the elves. We just don't really get any of that. And I do think that was a mistake. I think it added to the film, it added to Hermione, it added to each of the, the elves, their characters. And yeah, I don't know. I just thought that was kind of disappointing. I was, I couldn't remember. I wasn't even thinking. And I was like, oh yeah, we don't, we don't get much of Creature. He just kind of looks like a grumpy, weird elf. Like, even, I don't even like how they designed him.
2: Yeah, he was a little angry. when they he was like spying on them and then he was still like obedient to harry going to get mundungus but i was really hoping that we would have gotten some more of that loyalty and the nice Mm -hmm. version of him the creature i love and harry learning how and giving him the
0: locket he didn't give him the locket
1: yeah, I mean, I think a lot about filmmaking decisions because I love movies in general and how they had to cover so much ground. I mean, they cover, like we said, really early in the season, they cover like 500 pages in the first movie and then the second movie is the 200 pages of the third act. But I think at that point, then they're committed to not including the elves. So they don't want to include anything that doesn't make sense, that doesn't move them toward the horcruxes and hallows and, you know, getting, getting to the the final battle, which of course is more extensive than what's in the books because it's a movie and people want to have action when they go to the movie.
0: True. Yeah, I guess
1: that's a good point. There was a lot of action. The only other thing I had from the first movie, part one, was Mm -hmm. the fact that Peter Pettigrew is not killed. They stun him in Malfoy Manor. Mm -hmm. And I realized that... This was the magic I couldn't think of, not the Harry's charm at Privet Drive. So backing it up a little bit, many weeks ago and over the course of several weeks, we discussed the Fidelius charm and there was one episode, I can't remember which one, where I say I can't remember something. And it's been bugging me ever since what I can't remember. And last week I thought it was that the the deep magic of Lily's love and Dumbledore's charm to protect Harry at Privet Drive, but it's not. It's the magic of the silver hand and Pettigrew having mercy on Harry and how he ends up dying for that mercy. That kind of deep magic fascinates me because it's it's not magic it's like it it is but it isn't I don't know how to describe it and I just love that part of it where it's like things happen Harry does magic he doesn't understand he's safe in his home because of these weird combination of factors Pettigrew can't have mercy because somehow Voldemort knew that he might have mercy and gave him a cursed hand not a real hand to save himself like it's just those are all fascinating to me but then they don't even include it I mean they don't even include it in the film and I'm like I guess they didn't want to be gruesome, but it was also kind of important that we understand that that's how bad Voldemort Mm. is. He kills Snape and he kills Pettigrew because they might have stood in his way, his most loyal servants.
0: But what I like about that is that that does mean maybe in the afterlife, there is redemption then for Peter Pettigrew because of the fact that they say love is so powerful that if you let it back in, you can then be redeemed. So I do kind of wonder if, you know, whatever the wizarding world afterworld looks like. And maybe he was redeemed. So what else do you have in part
1: one or moving into part two? I'm on to part two. What
0: about you, Samantha?
2: I think the thing that I really enjoyed in the movies was how they showed Harry being able to sense the horcruxes. Like hearing them and having this like Mm -hmm. connection to them. Especially with the locket on Umbridge. And he's like, it's here. It's down here. I I just, I really love that. It's like a little creepy. (laughs) Yeah, I was uncertain. I was a fan of that until
1: the huge deviation in the final scenes of part two, where he tells Ron and Hermione he's going into the forest, which is like, that changes his whole character in my mind. The fact that he tells someone that he has to go versus doing it alone on his own and carrying that weight. Mm -hmm. But the fact that he has that conversation with Hermione where he says, you know now why I have to. And they explain why he's been hearing the Horcruxes. And I was like, okay, as long as you're going to make a change like that, as long as you Tie it up with a nice bow. I will let it go through.
2: (laughs) Yeah. And then the whole like Harry as a Horcrux thing with Ron and how sensitive he is to the locket and how sensitive other people are around the Horcruxes. It also like shows maybe the Dursleys were as bad to Harry because he was a Horcrux this whole time. That was a mic drop. I love that idea. Like maybe people are affected by Harry and we didn't really realize it all along. Wow. Interesting theory. That is like
1: a tweet worthy at JK Rowling to see what she says. Because we talked about that in a previous episode, how interacting and getting close to, not just physically touching, but getting emotionally close to a horcrux can impact you.
2: Interesting. And also like how like Umbridge didn't seem to be really affected by it. I mean we know that she's like from the bloodlines of several of them but she claims yeah. <laughs> <All> right right <laughs> so like maybe people who like have no soul <laughs> <laughs> are, aren't affected you know but yeah i just i just was thinking like okay well it, it still affected harry though like hermione's like take that off now so it was still affecting him too but yeah i just thought that was interesting mm, that is super interesting
0: and maybe because he's a human, it's a little bit different. You know what I mean? You don't wear it or I don't know. Joe Rowling did say the reason that um, Umbridge yeah. wasn't affected is because okay. she was already evil and that it <laughs> wouldn't have affected her. That's just like already her like wave, brain wavelength. But the hairy one, yeah, I don't know. But he also had so many good relationships that would kind of make you wonder like, I don't know. I don't like giving the, the Dursleys any excuse. They get right. no excuses. <laughs> Even though you bring up a really good point. <laughs>
1: Okay, well, as we move into part two, let's take a quick break to hear from our sponsors. Hey, so let's make the galleons to keep the show going. Have you heard of the Osseo Box? The Osseo Box is the magical world's only vegan and cruelty-free indie subscription box, and it's perfect if you still need a little more magic in your life after listening to this week's episode of the Glittering Bell Jar. Each monthly box is a theme from the Wizarding World. Past boxes include Big Witch Energy, House Pride, and Magical Books. You can also bypass boxes and themed character boxes. You know which one we want, hashtag Neville Visit our sister site at followthebutterflies.com slash osseobox to sign up today and you'll receive 20% off your box or subscription. That's followthebutterflies.com slash osseobox to sign up for the box. Thanks for supporting our show. Now let's get back to the Wizarding World. And welcome back. We are discussing the two Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows films as part of our finale slash bonus episode all about Deathly Hallows. And we are joined today by Samantha, who found us on our premiere day and has been with us since the beginning and is just blowing our minds with a new perspective, which is lovely to have, lovely to have. She might not, she might be back forever more, I have to say. <laughs> we'll see if she's available. I have two pages <laughs> of
2: notes, so I, oh, I came prepared gosh. for this. Love it.
1: I love it, I love it. Okay, so let's talk about part two. Opening scene, again, not in the books. It's the the Hogwarts scene, students marching in, Death Eaters making things miserable, Snape just overseeing, and then we go into the film. So what do we think having another opening scene that isn't in the books?
0: You know, I, I liked it. I think it gave us some more darkness. Hogwarts has now changed forever, or at least, you know, it feels that way. I do think you do start to question, I guess if you haven't read the books before you watch the movie, you're questioning Snape. And I loved his, he was very, um, I feel like in previous movies, he was not very expressive, but he was pretty expressive in this movie where you can see the sorrow, even whenever he goes in to uh, Voldemort, whenever they they have the teacher, the Muggle studies teacher up in the air, he does look stunned and sad. He, you know what I mean? He looks horrified. Um, As much as, you know, Snape can, he doesn't have a ton of expression. But um, yeah, the opening scene, I think it it would at least I imagine confuse me as a viewer, if I didn't already know that he was a good guy, because he looks sad. He doesn't look happy. And he doesn't look evil either.
1: You make a really interesting point that I always forget that there are people who watched only the movies, because it's like, in my universe of people, you've read the books, and you then you saw the movies. And so Yeah, a lot of the changes in exposition have to happen so that people who didn't want to read 740 amazing pages can still know what's going on. But I agree. Snape is a lot more expressive. I actually had a great note about him and McGonagall that we can come back to. I'm sure we'll get to that point because I was like, should I get into it now? Yeah, just do it. Yeah. Okay. So... I also noticed that he was really expressive with McGonagall when Harry reveals himself to the caros and Snape in the Great Hall and McGonagall steps in to defend him mm. and he looks afraid. He realizes he's met a witch who can mm. match his skill. And I love that scene for okay, a couple of reasons. One, Snape then casts this spell behind him that takes out the caros. That I remember when I learned that he did that on purpose. I love that. And then he runs away, like flies away, like flies out the window because he knows McGonagall's way too powerful. She's actually better in the film than she is in the book. She is more badass, I think. She sends the, the Slytherins to the dungeon, right? She <laughs> scares me. She calls out the castle and then is like, oh. I've always wanted to do that. She's like in it. She's like owning her power as the deputy headmistress now that Snape is gone. And I'm just like, Maggie Smith really brought her for that final scene. And I love I love giving her that space to have that control over the castle and defending it.
2: Yeah, that and also like stepping in front of Harry when Snape was like about trying to duel him and her like, no, like it was like that motherly instinct that she's had with him since the beginning. Mm-hmm. I love that. And then at the end with the pure totem locomotive where she's like, I've always wanted to do that spell. That was my favorite. I put a star next to it. Like, I think that was my favorite part. (laughs) (laughs) I loved that. It was like, Mm -hmm. just so cute.
1: Yeah, it's and it's better than the book. I feel like it's more, she has more meat in this than she does. And she has a lot in the book. It's just a different lot. And this lot is, I think, more enjoyable.
0: Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think you finally get to see her be protective over Harry, like she's always wanted to and maybe wasn't allowed to. She's finally like, okay, I get to do what I want and be in charge, which she probably should have always. So yeah, it was a very, very good moment. And I also liked that she sent the Slytherns to the dungeon. I don't know if I liked it, but I did put a note there. I was like, she sent them to the dungeon. (laughs) Like, dang. Yeah. Yeah, she doesn't, it's like she learned from the
1: mistake of letting them go in the book, and she didn't do it the second time, but she just put them in the dungeon where they belong. I love that. Wait, what do you
0: mean? (laughs) When they came back, they came back to fight on the good side in the
1: book. So in the book, she lets the Slytherin, she lets all the students, underage students leave the castle. And I think one of the other characters says, why are you letting them leave? We should have held hostages. And Harry says, or Harry or McGonagall says, that's not how we do this. Like we don't, we don't play with the students that way. And so she does let most of them leave. Now some Slytherins come back to fight, but that it's a different it's a totally different order of operations versus here. She's just like, go to the dungeon. You like it down there.
0: <laughs> Fair enough. What about Aberforth? I, I really liked seeing him in the movie. I think they picked a good, a really good actor. I think he does look enough like Dumbledore, but enough kind of, you know, he's got his own little burliness going for him. And I do, I do wish there had been, there's key scenes that have to do with Dumbledore and Aberforth that I think they missed out on. I, I really do think we missed something by not hearing about his sister and not hearing his side and getting to have that, scene at the bar. But I still like that the actor was so expressive that you could tell that Aberforth wanted to save Harry like he couldn't save his sister. Like he was trying to save him from his brother's shenanigans, from his brother's grand plan. And if he couldn't save his sister, he would try to save this boy who he's been watching out for because I don't know, he does care or he does care about the cause. I'm not sure. But um, I did, I did like him in that. And I just wish we could have seen maybe a little bit more of it. I thought it was interesting though that they told Aberforth about the Horcruxes. They said it several times. They say the Horcrux a couple times. They said it to um, the Goblin as well. I know, I know and I don't figure I can't figure that out the whole point is it was secret <laughs> I know yeah they say horcrux several times I'm like get out of here
2: yeah that was one of the key differences with the book in um Bellatrix's vault was that Hermione was supposed to say Accio mm-hmm. Cup so that the goblins didn't know they were hunting horcruxes yes but in the movie she said "The mm-hmm. horcrux exactly. as if it would listen
0: mm-hmm yeah exactly I noticed that too
2: and I was like what the heck are we keeping this
0: a secret or not yeah yeah, I don't. I don't know why they did that. I don't know why they did it. I. I feel
1: like they made some changes like that. Like they. They clearly cut the. They gutted Dumbledore's backstory. Mm. His whole life and lies about with Dumbledore. That was basically removed. And then they they don't do any of the Hallows versus Horcruxes internal debate that Harry has, right? Mm-mm. He's supposed to be trying to figure out which direction he goes. Should he go after this wand, this thing that Voldemort's obsessed with, or should he go after the Horcruxes? They don't have any of that. And then they start telling people about Horcruxes, which seems like a liability, frankly. Like the whole point is that nobody should know about them until they're all destroyed and then Voldemort is vulnerable. But also then we discover Voldemort knows they're being destroyed because he keeps changing every time it happens. And I, li- I liked that. I liked that he looked more mm-hmm. destroyed, basically. Like, his skin changed, his head changed. That was a good visual cue that things weren't going well, but also he's not supposed to know. He's not supposed to know until after Gringotts, and then he realizes what they're after. Right. They just kind of didn't have any secrecy around the Horcruxes when they're supposed to be very secret.
0: Yeah. I think it was a kind of a plot hole in the movies, personally, but... I really appreciated the war scene with the big three running through the castle. Um, You have the trolls, you have the spiders, you have the wolf or the werewolf killing Lavender. It was very, very like just visually like appealing, like obviously it's a war, it's sad, but it just, it showed us way more than I think even the books could do. Like it just did a better job than even words could do because it was just, there was a lot going on. It was a very, very cool scene, personally.
2: Yeah, I loved how they showed like what was happening like up in the tower on those like wooden bridges and then on the big set of stairs. And so you could really see it was happening everywhere. It was this major invasion. Yeah. And of course, Molly Weasley killing Bellatrix was the best part. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Not my daughter. Yeah, yep,
1: yeah. yep. Yeah. One thing that I noticed is somewhat in the same time frame is snape acknowledging that he knows lily because he says you have your mother's eyes and the only way he could know that is to know lily and he is he's basically saying to harry mm. like it wasn't just about your father it was about your mother too and i had never caught that he was acknowledging that like he, he, he never says lily he always talks about james snape always mentions james when he's talking to harry and that's the last thing he says is you have your mother's eyes. And it's the acknowledgement that it, it's also Lily. Yeah. That's also part of this story. Hmm.
0: I guess you're right. I never noticed that he didn't. Because I was thinking that whenever Harry and Snape did oculomancy, that Harry saw those. But I guess he only saw the bad things about his dad. He didn't really see the good things about Lily. Yeah, the only time he sees Lily is when Snape calls her a mudblood,
1: which would right. give him the indication that they are not friends. He has no context mm-hmm. that they ever were friends mm-hmm. until he goes into his memory,
2: and that's why he was asking why it was so curious that Snape and his mom had the same Patronus. Oh, like even thinking about it now, when he he was when when Harry was watching the flashbacks of what he knew with Snape, it was always about his dad. So that is yeah. that does yeah, that does make a lot of sense.
1: And I don't think that line is in the book. I don't think Snape says that in the book. Says what? I might be wrong, but you have your mother's eyes as his kind of last word. I thought he did. Look. Let's take a look.
0: Let's find out. Maybe you're right. I think he does just say, look at me, and he's like, look at me.
1: Yeah. Yep, he says, look at me.
0: Mm, I like I like that he did that.
1: Yeah, you could theoretically say the green eyes found the black and after a second something in the depths of the p- dark pair vanished. Like they're alluding to, and we talked about it being mm-hmm. Snape's last thing he sees on this earth is Lily's eyes, but they make it more obvious in the book. And from Harry's perspective, he has to be like, why does he know what my mother's eyes look like? Like, where yeah. does that come from? And then he gets that answer when he goes into the memories. The other thing I caught that I'd never caught before was that Snape in his memory says always right after all this time always and then Lily echoes it in the forest. I had never heard that line before and I don't know if it's in the book because it's never jumped out at me like will you stay with me always or something like that. I think in the book it's just till the till the end or something. I loved that that parallel between the two of them that in their own way Lily and Snape are still connected for Harry There's definitely an allusion to it because Dumbledore, when Dumbledore and Snape are talking in, in Snape's memories, Dumbledore says, can't you find another woman? Basically, like, won't Voldemort just er, let you have your pick of any woman you want? And he, he says, I don't want any other woman. She's the only one. I'm trying to find it. It's going to take me a second. I have to, I'm flipping through rapidly.
0: See, I thought the only thing that was said was Voldemort was talking about Snape and Lily, and he said, well, Snape can find somebody else. Yeah, I must be, I
1: must be pulling together different parts of the story in my mind because it's not in that conversation between them. Oh, I had one more thing. Mm-hmm. Well, I have a couple other things. They're mm-hmm. littler. Okay. But I really... They didn't go into it in the movie, so I can't say this with certainty. But I finally got clear in my mind that Dumbledore's plan for Harry... In the prince's tale, is for the greater good. We saved him to die at the proper time, and the and the, the unspoken thing is for the greater good, which is the whole thing that's been Dumbledore's whole mantra: is for the greater good. And Snape, Snape, mm-hmm. just like most people, rejects this idea. Wait, we did this for the greater. What you can't keep him alive just to have him killed later. But that is Dumbledore's plan. So it's like this thesis in his life, from being a young man to the to, to after his death. Mm -hmm. That he's doing it for the greater good and everyone else doesn't realize they're just pawns in that game, which it's for the greater good. But it's still like these are people's lives that are getting pulled up into Dumbledore's scheme. So I get Aberforth's anger with his brother about that.
2: But Dumbledore also was preparing that Harry would have to die by giving him the resurrection stone. That's true. So yes, he was like, like they said, like a sheep for slaughter. But at the same time, he was saying like, or he was doing the work that nobody knew about in secret to try to help him at least. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that is true.
0: And he knew that it was for the greater good and the fact that Harry got to live and he became probably a much better person of himself because he didn't have a horcrux (laughs) on his back, you know? So, well, I don't know that Dumbledore knew what would what would happen, but he no. knew that the only way to stop
1: Voldemort was for Harry to die. And so he right. had to just set Harry on the path that was going to
0: try and accomplish that goal mm-hmm. with as little collateral damage as possible. Right. I think he had a theory. I think everything in the entire books Dumbledore has theories. And I do think that he had a theory that Harry would live. I don't think he knew that. He was willing to risk it, risk it for the biscuit. But I feel like there's a quote that Dumbledore says that sometime. Oh, it's in
1: it's in King's Cross where Harry's like, tell me what you know. And he's like, I don't I don't know. And Harry's like, have a guess. And Dumbledore's like, well, my guesses are usually pretty good.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, right. You know, and speaking of King's Cross, we don't get to see enough. I know they decided to gut Dumbledore's whole backstory. So I guess that's why we don't get much. But Dumbledore is much more forthcoming he explains the wand to Harry that everything he he does so much for Harry in that scene in the book and in the movies he's still kind of just very elusive there's no closure on there's no there's no full circle where in the book we get to see Dumbledore kind of confessing and telling Harry everything you get a little closure and you're like okay well at least he's not he's still kind of a jerk but you get a little less of that like you see a little bit more human instead of manipulator and you just don't get that in the movies. Yeah, he's not as angry, though.
2: And in the movie, the first time I saw it with like that white King's Cross scene, I was just focused on that like little dead piece of Voldemort. It was just so like shocking. Like, why is this necessary that like everything else kind of was overshadowed by that? Like now, now seeing it after so many times, I'm like, oh, yeah, it's just that. But I'm like, okay, I'm going to watch this with my kids. And like, that's the one part we're going to be talking about (laughs) the whole
1: time. Yeah, it's an interesting adaptation of that scene. I think it does a better job. I feel like somebody finally got in, is it Michael Gambon? Yeah, it's Michael Gambon's face and was like, stop yelling at Harry. You are too angry. Dumbledore's not angry. He's kindly. Come on, man. That's a different adjective. For me, it was. it's such a refreshing difference in the Dumbledores that I'm like, I'm okay that it doesn't cover as much of the information that we need and we don't have as much time there. We don't get the closure because mm-hmm. I'm like, at least Dumbledore's not yelling at everybody. Yeah. I don't. Who Who is this Dumbledore? Ugh.
2: Right. It's also like the Dumbledore of Harry's version of heaven, Mm -hmm. which is like the trustworthy, like honest. I mean, maybe we're just seeing it through that lens. Yeah, that's
0: a good point. That's kind of how you viewed it, Valerie, was that is this all in Harry's mind, which we know, Mm -hmm. you know, of course it is. But does that mean like none of it was it wasn't really Dumbledore, which would mean that it's just what Harry wanted to hear and to see.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah.
0: Good point. Okay. I have two more notes, and
1: then we'll see what you guys have to wrap it up. So the first one is, I have long been a fan of Malfoy. Like Malfoy was my favorite character throughout where my Slytherin comes from, and I loved watching this time and realizing Malfoy was not going to cross that line for his father.
0: Yes, he did
1: it for his mom. He did it for his mom. It's <laughs> only when his mother calls out to yes. him and finally, which makes me think like if his mom hadn't been there, would he have stayed on that side? Would that have 100%. been the break? And it's crazy to me that I never had caught that dynamic that Lucius asks him to come and he he doesn't move. He actually almost like rocks back, Mm -hmm. like Tom Felton like sits back, like I'm not, and then his mother calls and he can't say no to her. And I just, I just loved that small piece. And then the other thing is, and this is what I caught from closed captioning, when Harry comes back to life, and the Death Eaters start abandoning Voldemort. Yeah. And there's a line that's buried in the closed captioning that is, stop fleeing or something and i was like they are so afraid of harry and what power he has to defeat Voldemort. Mm-hmm. they are gone they are out they just zoop up in their little ghosty smoky things and they are gone and i just loved that because i never really i thought they were like flying around to start fighting or something i never heard the line that they're they're abandoning him wow and i'm like yeah you better run <laughs> right like
2: Yeah, the idea that it could be another fight that they didn't want to do. Mm -hmm. And that Harry has just survived the
1: killing curse again. Again. He's literally invincible. You cannot kill this guy. Because Voldemort, (laughs) the most powerful guy of all time, has tried twice and failed twice.
0: Yeah, the boy who lived again. (laughs) Like,
1: like I'm out. That should have been the name. That should have been the epilogue. You know, it should have had a title, like, not 19 years (laughs) later, but like, the boy who lived again. Because he did.
2: (laughs) I think that point about Narcissa also ties in well to her talking to Harry after he's in declaring him dead in the forest because she asks him if Draco is still alive. And this, again, shows that like connection with him. But Harry only knows he's alive because Harry just saved him. So, like, this is also like, had Harry not saved Draco, like she probably wouldn't have said he was dead, and then he really would have been dead. Mm -hmm. So everything would have played out completely different in that.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, I liked seeing the movie version of that just because it reminded me of how kind Harry is and how so much like his mother he is because he just he can't say no to people. He has to just keep saving people. Um, Just like not only stunning Stan Shunpike, like he just, he can't, he can't, he can't hurt people. He's just too kind. And he doesn't want the wand. He breaks it in half, you know, mm-hmm. he doesn't, he only uses the stone like in a, you know, it, he has a pure heart. And that's, that's why he was able to kill Voldemort in the end. Mm hmm. Yeah. Jacob, my husband, and I talked about the whole reality of dictators
1: creating their own downfall, which is a great thing in in Harry Potter, where Voldemort picks the boy and gives him the skills to defeat him. And how if Voldemort had just ignored the prophecy, no one would have been able to stop him. But his own hubris and belief that he could defeat anyone creates Harry Potter. And it, and I don't know that it would have been the same, but it sh- theoretically should have been the same for Neville, right? Because Neville's the almost chosen one. They're the same yeah. in the prophecy. They're indistinguishable until Voldemort makes a decision, and he he creates the person who can defeat him. But not only does he create that person because he has Death Eaters and they attack Neville's parents, he right. creates the other half, and Neville does the the killing stroke which kind of of finale, but like Voldemort just breaks apart and like floats away after the snake is killed and his wand is taken. And it's like Neville is just a pivotal part of ending Voldemort as Harry is.
0: Mm
2: -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And that also ties into that whole like with the Deathly Hallows title and that the whole point with this book is that Voldemort is still like dying for power, which mm-hmm. is the, the first brother with the mm-hmm. wand, right? So he's still mm-hmm. like he, cre- he was so desperate for the power that he ultimately gave Harry the power and still died.
1: Yeah. What did you say? Like, I, I sent you that message today, Bree. that your, your great quote from last week's, keep underestimating and then you die. That was Brie's Voldemort in a nutshell. <laughs> right? He just
2: assumes he knows everything yeah, and then yeah. he keeps underestimating everything around him and then he dies. <laughs> yeah, especially because he didn't even realize that he had made so many horcruxes that he made harry as one and didn't even know it.
1: Yeah, he would he should have had, he should have raised right you literally attached your soul to him. Right. You should have raised harry as your own, bro. Like that was the smart move. Raise an evil stepchild that you can then keep with you because he's got your soul inside of him like you left him in the house and now he became a good guy and defeated you okay that is some fan
2: fiction i want to
0: read <laughs> i know actually
2: with a pet snake oh no peace of my soul i'll take you in little one. <laughs> oh my goodness oh no
1: all right do either of you have any more notes on the part two
2: I think my only after just listening to like last week's episode right before this call, the one thing that I noticed when you were talking about how Hermione how Hermione didn't want to ride the broom in like the seven potters is that in the movies she did Mm -hmm. and she rode the broom in the room of requirement with the fiend fire. Mm -hmm. So like that whole like her her being scared of it like not in the movie. (laughs) she can do it just the same she doesn't need to be saved she's got this like she had her own broom and she did it so i i was like okay i see that i see that i even went back and like watched the like the seven potters scene where they're all mounting the brooms and the thestral and everything to to fly and i'm like nope all the potters on the brooms she's there good for her yeah good catch too i like that (laughs) do you have anything else I have one more thing, Go but ahead. about how the Deathly Hallows mm-hmm. came from, okay, so it's not in the movies, but the Deathly Hallows came from the from the three brothers, and then how Harry and Voldemort are related. I don't Did you guys talk about that? We did. Before? We
1: did briefly. We ended okay. up on a, well, we ended up on a meme post in Facebook that was wrong, and then I had to be like, wait, <laughs> we have to talk about this family tree thing. Okay, so-
2: Yeah, yeah. And I know we've gotten the whole like Lily's blood protection, which doesn't expire because now Voldemort used Lily's blood, used Harry's blood and that whole like thing that what you're obsessive about. And then yeah, just the just how with the Deathly Hallows, I really loved how in the movie, they used like the cartoon to do the storytelling because it's the story from the children's book. But then it circles back around, like I said, where Voldemort was died seeking power, like the first brother. Snape died for true love, like the second brother. And then Harry was the one who went to greet death like an old friend in the, in the, in the Forbidden Forest. And Harry comes from family, from Ignotus Peverell, who was the one who had the cloak that got passed on to his dad, that Dumbledore held for him until he was at Hogwarts. So that was just really cool how it all tied in. That's perfect. And I guarantee
1: that was no accident. And that is what I love about the Harry Potter mm-hmm. series, is that you find these things and they were, they were thought through. It's not, I, you know, I love Game of Thrones. I've read all the Game of Thrones, as many as there are right now, because they don't ever seem to be finishing. But I, I, one thing that that series lacked for me was the way mm-hmm. that the narrative was all connected, that there were always pieces and they were referencing each other and they were bigger than the universe that you were even looking at. There was so much more out there. And that is why I am so excited that we were able to do this project. Yeah. And we did an entire one of the biggest books in the series, and it worked, and people are listening. And now we have to take a break. <laughs> <laughs> Which is to say, ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for joining us. If you have enjoyed this episode, or any episode this season, or all the episodes this season, I hope you will take a few minutes to give us some feedback. We would love your ratings and your reviews. They are on Spotify now. Woo-hoo. I am hearing every other podcast tell you. So if you are on Spotify, please give us that five stars yes we would love to hear from you feedback and a review you can find us on social media at Beljar jar pod brie is always on the line if you need her if always. you have corrections because i said something wrong <laughs> and me. then you may join us like samantha did because samantha's been following along on this incredible journey she is coming with some insane knowledge that That's what I've loved about this so far, and we are really looking forward to getting back to you in about a month. If you are listening way in the future from when we're recording, you don't have to wait. There won't be a break, but we will be back to kick off Half-Blood Prince in just a few weeks, and we hope you'll be there to join
2: us. Yeah, can't wait. I can't wait to listen.
0: Glittering Bell Jar is a Harry Potter podcast produced by the Calibro Group in partnership with Wild Goose Creatives. It is an unofficial fan project that is not authorized, approved, licensed, or endorsed by J.K. Rowling, her publishers, or Warner Brothers Entertainment Incorporated. Our theme music is Carnival of the Animals R125, Aquarium by Moments, licensed via Soundstripe. You can discover even more magic on followthebutterflies.com.